The number one skill is knowing what story to tell before you have to worry about any storytelling at all. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Jonathan Gottschall. We are, as a species, addicted to story. My guest today, Rich Maholland, is a gifted storyteller who helps leaders hone their own storytelling skills for themselves and their businesses. He's the founder of Missing Link, a company that helps clients give world-class presentation uh, to companies for over 25 years. And he's also a celebrated keynote speaker who's spoken in 30 countries, serial entrepreneur, and the author of three books. Rich, thanks for joining us on the Elevate podcast. I am very, very excited to be with you today. And Rich was trying to make me laugh, uh, making faces during our uh, 10 seconds of silence when we start here. Uh, already breaking rules, which which will lead very well to the first question, which is, uh, particularly with entrepreneurs, I-, I like to start with kind of early childhood. I know the entrepreneurial spirit tends to have deep roots. So what were you like as a, a kid? And uh, how did your entrepreneurial sort of side come through then? So I was always the boss at everything. And it was almost <laughs> always a bad decision. Like I was the leader of the gang, uh, but I didn't really know what we we're doing. I was the captain of the rugby team, but I wasn't good at rugby. Like I, I managed to convince people that I should be in charge, but I think it was all delusional self-belief. And that was relatively consistent throughout my life. Like I, I think I was very good at getting people to want to follow me. I just didn't really have a good idea of where I wanted to go. All I wanted to be was either a salesman or a stuntman. Yeah. I mean, so obviously that's a high degree of of charisma, which is a... Uh admirable quality. So a salesman or a stuntman. So how did those paths uh, sort themselves out? Did you try both or what did you, what did you study in university? Uh, and then what'd you do after? Okay. So uh, the first question is easy. I didn't go to university. <laughs> I left As school I said and that, I, became... I realized that that <laughs> had a high chance of being the answer, but God. <laughs> yeah. So I actually realized relatively quickly. Like I, I I knew certainly that I didn't want to study after school. There wasn't, yeah. I wanted to be a salesman. So by then I was pretty dialed in. I knew I was good at sales and I, I really, really enjoyed sales. I actually wrote a business plan in, in matric, which is our final year of school for a business called uh, Club Exec, which was a sales. It was basically a program for salespeople uh, to crank a better offers for each other. And uh, my business economics teacher actually caught me writing it and tore it up, which I thought told me everything I needed to know about education at the time. And so that was that was a, a sign for me that in my head that I wanted to go my own path. So I actually went, I toured with rock bands for a while. I, I worked with uh, some really, really cool bands uh, while I was figuring out what I wanted to do and then uh, fell into Missing Link as an idea when I was 22. So what did you do with the rock bands? Were you a roadie? Yeah, I was a lighting, light, started off as a lighting engineer, then became a lighting designer. My, both my father and my sister are audio engineers. And yeah. so I wanted to, I liked the idea of the family business, but I wanted to do something different. And I wanted to go into the business end. I actually wanted to sell for the company I went to work for. But uh, the boss there, an amazing guy, probably the most, when I, when I think back, he was probably the person who influenced me the most. His name is Offer Lapide. He said to me that I couldn't uh, join the business unless I spent two years on the road. So I spent two years on the road and uh, managed to do really, really well. I went from two years to the day. You were on the selling on the road. 
No, no, no. I was oh. a, so I actually was lucky enough. I programmed the lights for an Iron Maiden world tour. Oh, this is all the same thing. You wanted to work in the business and he wanted you to go on the road. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he wanted me to, to he said, you can't sell in our business if you don't got understand it. what it's like to be a roadie. So, and roadie is a, it's a term typically for, for backline, but uh, we tend not to use it ourselves, but it's easy for people yeah. to understand. But yeah, so I was a lampy, a lighting guy and uh, specifically a lighting designer. Awesome. So how did you transition to your first company? <laughs> because we didn't have work in winter. Like <laughs> nobody would hire us. And South Africans don't go to concerts when it's cold, which is funny because I'm from Scotland. Fair. <laughs> if you didn't go to concerts when it was cold, there would never be a concert. And I went to offer at this stage, I had transitioned into the, the business side of things. And part of my mandate was to try and figure out how we could get work in winter. And I saw two markets. The one was the rave market, because it turns out that people don't really care about cold weather when yeah. they're on drugs. And the other was the, uh, I mean, hey, it's the truth. It's just, it is then, what it is, yeah. And then the other was the corporate market. Uh, and what I realized one day is we were actually throwing this big rave and it felt like a really big job for me. But next door, you know, we'd booked, you know, those big conference rooms that kind of divide into multiples. Yeah, yeah. And we had taken one corner, which I thought was pretty big. And the other three parts were taken by this bank for one of their conferences. And I was like, wow. So wait, you had a rave going on next to a bank conference? Well, it was, we were loading out, <laughs> they were loading in, okay, but it was, it. it was in the same venue. Got and it. the realization was that uh, there's a lot more places to find budget. So I went to my boss. I said, hey, I want to start a conference division. And, you know, I'm going to go to these, uh, these people. I'm going to sell them on the idea that we can make their, their conferences amazing. And so they bought into the idea and I kept on getting, you know, work uh, for PSL conference services, which was we were selling lighting and sound and staging. Right. But it didn't matter. If, if the presenters were shit, it was shit. If the presenters were good, it was good. It didn't matter about the sound and lighting that was lipstick and a pig. In fact, when they were bad, you probably wanted to lower the lighting on them. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And in fact, I always, even to this day, if you want to test yourself as a public speaker, look to see if the crew is listening. Because they have to sit through so much. I always feel if I can win over the crew, if I can see the front of house engineers nodding and listening along to my yeah. talk, I know that I've won. I was on a panel a few years back, an industry panel, where there was four mics for five people uh, on it. And um, one of the people just didn't prepare, didn't read the questions, did not have good answers, did not go well. That happened to be the person who also decided to share their mic with a person next to him. But they're like sitting literally next to each other. And it was a panel. So you'd hand it over otherwise. And the, the sort of PR handler person came over screaming afterwards that we didn't have a mic for this person and whatever. And all, and all I could think uh, in my mind was the person did much better when they didn't have a mic. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. I think you're, you're barking up the wrong tree there. Yeah, some people have the, the face for radio and some people have the ideas for photography modeling. <laughs> yeah. Well, some people also, you know, it's interesting. I When I do these things, I tend to send out, you know, if it's a panel, I'll send out the eight questions and we get to four. And just if you read them, there's no trick questions. But if you don't read them and you didn't prepare, then it, it's harder. But it's funny how sometimes that would be something that is blamed externally, not internally. Yeah, panels. I mean, we could go, we could go deep on panels. It's such a tricky thing for me. I always feel conned when I when I go to a conference thinking that uh, I'm going to see a speaker. And then I arrive there and then it's a panel discussion, or even if it's just an interview one-to-one. -one. 
because the burden of preparation moves from the speaker to the uh, facilitator. Yeah. And often I feel like you're asking them level one questions when they have level 10 ideas. And if you ask me to, so if you ask me to prepare a keynote, I'm thinking long and hard of what I want to say. But if you tell me that you want to show up and you want to interview me, I give it no moment's thought until you ask me the question when I'm sitting on the stage. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting point in terms of, and, and I think we'll digress a little bit, but but one thing you've probably seen this too, when people think about speakers, some people get asked to speak because they wrote a really good book. And there's one author in particular has wrote this just world-class best-selling book. And I've I've heard this person on podcasts, they all sound the same. And I actually wonder if you're you know, if if seeing the person in person is any better than reading the book. It might not be that they're you know, they're a good speaker. Similarly, there's some speakers wh- who, I, you know, particularly were told that they they are brilliant or have a great background, but they don't have a, a speech. They don't have a framework. So you want to interview those people. <laughs> you don't want them to get up there and ramble. And then there are other people who are great storytellers like you or otherwise where they have a speech, they know how to package it. It's not like reading their book. Uh, it, there's a lot of misperception about what makes a good speech and a good speaker. I, it was actually an EO conference I was at where they the keynote person they paid the most for, they were like, don't, do not let him speak, like interview him. <laughs> and it was, I had never heard that before, but it occurred to me again, some people just don't, that's not, you know, they're good at answering questions. They're not good at preparing a really compelling, you know, framework and speech. Yeah. So a lot of people are, a lot of people are speakers because of the fame factor. So they're invited because you want to have a photograph with this person. So it's fantastic. You know, if you got Ryan, I don't know how Ryan Reynolds, for example, is as a speaker, but, you know, great entrepreneur, great actor, might not be a fantastic business speaker, but it doesn't matter. Everyone is going to want to go up and be one degree separated from Ryan Reynolds, you know, and get a photograph of the Ryan Reynolds at a talk. So they right. still serve their purpose as creating memory at the end of it. But then you get speakers like me and I have to, I have to trade in surprise and delight. Right. Right, right. Ryan Rands will be a draw, right? So sometimes if you paid to be there, you know, you want it, it's marketing. But look, this is this is a good segue to what we'll talk a lot more about here. And that is uh, you know, storytelling's been a huge part of your career, both speaking and your business. Like, was it always natural to you? Was it something you had to learn? Like can people I see I know people can become better storytellers, but maybe talk a little bit about how we become better storytellers, particularly when we're presenting, because I think uh, that's probably one of the most compelling places to tell stories. Okay, so there's a few things that we'd have to unpack there. The first is, uh, which which story are we telling? Because there's a big problem here, and, and like I'd like to go to war with, and that is nobody cares about your story. It's not yeah. it's not your story. So you know, somebody does one thing, they run a marathon, they, they finish the Ironman, and they're like, hey, I wanna get on and, and tell my story, and I don't care. It's not that interesting. You have to have a hypothesis. So story is a fantastic tool, but it's not just the job. It's the support element of the job. And we can, we'll unpack that a little bit. I'll explain to you how I explain its role. Let's go back a bit, though. So I think I've been a, a natural storyteller relatively early on, but I didn't understand its role properly, and I didn't understand the nuance of it and, and how to do it in a better way. And that's only come with, you know, a lot of practice. And actually, a lot of our practice is tacit. We, we get on a stage, we present, and then we see what reactions we get. And some of my stories follow a, a very, very big narrative arc because it's good for the action I want to create. But some follow a narrative arc just because I want the audience to laugh. 
And I believe that I have two mandates as a speaker at any given time is to make sure that the audience enjoys themselves and that they do an action as a result of me being there. Yeah. So um, for me, the, the first thing is that I think we over glorify story. And what it leads is a lot of people joining speaking programs saying, hey, I've got a really interesting story to tell. And in fact, it's the first thing that I try to talk most people out of <laughs> when they join our program. I'll say, listen, there are two kinds of speakers. We have nine categorizations, but let's say two. There are Olympiads and there are journalists. Unless you are the top of your field right. in the topic that you are discussing, because some people might be the top of their field, but they're talking about vulnerability. Unless you're the top of the field and the topic you're talking about, you're a journalist. Your talk is based on the research that you do backed up with your anecdotal stories. But even the storytelling might be stories about great studies done by scientists and positioning that in a cool way. Yeah. Yeah. So the number one skill is knowing what story to tell before you have to worry about any storytelling at all. Well, I mean, part of that, it would seem to be is whether you're focusing on the value for yourself or you're the value for the audience or the reader. I still remember telling a story that was very impactful to me in my second book. And uh, my editor was actually out on maternity leave. And there was a much older editor who I think it's funny. I, I think the older the editor, the more used they are to red ink, right? I think there's less criticism as you go younger. And so, and she like kind of tore apart the draft, which I appreciated. Like I, I'm actually good with red ink and was like, I know this story is really meaningful to you, but it really has no value to the reader, right? And, and so to what you were saying, it seems like if the story is demonstrative of a framework or an example of what you're trying to explain or something like that, then, then it sort of brings it to life. But again, I want to hear the story about the guy who climbed eight you know, mountains of the world with one lung when no one else has ever done that before. But completely, plenty of people have climbed Everest, right? So that's not at this point, that story is probably not compelling in itself unless it has some meaning or or the reader or the listener can see something in that that challenges their assumptions or beliefs. Right. So I had a chat, funny enough, on the Everest thing the other day to a speaker. I was speaking in Santorini and he came up to me afterwards, said, hey, I've I've uh, recently finished climbing Everest uh, and I've been telling you know my story to my forum, to people and things. And a lot of people mm -hmm. said I should, you know, should write a talk about it. And I said, great, what's your hypothesis? Right. Because you have to have a point. There's got to be, I'm, you're adding something to a conversation that people haven't thought about before. So the way I explain story to people is I use, and it's not even a metaphor, it's a true story. I used to have this dog called Murphy. His name is, uh, sorry, he was a boxer. And he was incredibly obedient, an amazing, amazing dog. I could get him to do almost anything. Like we did man work, tracking, uh, agility. Like this dog was incredible. And the only thing he wouldn't do is take medicine. And of course, in South Africa, I'm not sure how you guys do it there, but what we do when you want to give a dog medicine, you take a blob of peanut butter yeah. and then you take the pill and you put the pill inside the peanut butter. That's at least our strategy. So Okay, great. So then what I would do is I would take this peanut butter and I'd give him a little bit to taste. He'd be like, oh, that's delicious. I'd say, cool, stay. And I'd put the peanut butter down with the pill inside it. And I'd say, Murphy, stay. And he'd stay and say, stay. And he would start doing that little bum waggle thing that boxers do, you know, and then he's shaking. I'm like, stay. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> and I'd, I'd look and look and then we'd pause and say, okay, take it. And he would run forward and he would reach down. He would grab that peanut butter and he would, you know, gulp the whole thing down. And, he, you know, his tongue is going. And then I can see the moment where he realizes what I've done. And he's looking at me like, I see you, Mulholland. I know what you've done and I'm not happy. But it doesn't matter because he's taken the pill. And the reason I'm telling this story is because 
the your story, sorry, your your message and content is the pill. That's what you need to get inside them. That's the bit. Your story is the peanut butter. Yeah. It is the delivery mechanism for your content and your idea. Most people come to me and they say, hey, I've got this great peanut butter. And you know what that will do? It'll give your audience a really nice sugar rush. They'll feel lovely when you've gone and you will change nothing. Right. Whereas if you come to me and say, I've got this really incredible pill, then we will explore finding the right peanut butter to put around it, to entice your audience, to make it stick inside their brain uh, in a way that will change them. And that's the role of story for me. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Can you give me a tangible example of someone who came to you with, with peanut butter and, and kind of were able to really change the, either their presentation or business by figuring out what the, what the pill that they needed to put it down with was? <laughs> I can think of lots of examples, but I'm trying to think of it the right way to explain it to you in such a way that nobody's feelings get hurt. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sure they were... They were they're, you know, they're happy with the outcome. So, yeah. So we've had speakers who've come to us and they've said, um, we, we wanted to do a talk on a topic and they built the topic around an experience they had around it specifically. I'm not going to go into too much detail because this could, yeah. it, it was a, a specific extreme sport that they did that was uh, a really, really cool thing. And it sounded great, but technically, 
you know, if you went on holiday and you did it, I would say, well done, that sounds amazing, that's cool. But they were talking about facing their fears. And so they did this entire talk around, they built the entire talk around this trip that they were planning and how hectic it was. Now, the problem was it doesn't seem that hectic to most people. Uh, it's kind of hectic, but you understand their fear. They presented the whole thing on this and their, their entire thing was a story. And at the end, the end message was, you can achieve anything. Fear is only something that, you know, once you face it, you can fear forward and come up with these things. And so when they joined our program, we had to explain that I like what you're trying to do with that story. But first of all, we need some data to back this up or it's just anecdotal. People won't believe it. And second of all- It's also a little cliche-ish, right? It's very, very cliche. Yeah. So you've got to come up with a framework. So we want you to offer a fear framework that helps you work through the, say, in their case, they came up with a matrix that has these four stages of fear. And you have to work out what is functional fear, what is frictional fear, where, and once they figured that out, then it became interesting. Then they had an idea. And then actually their story still made it in. And it, but it worked because it was an anecdotal explanation of how they came up with the framework. And then they jumped into data and research that they'd used. Because as soon as they started seeing them themselves as journalists, because everyone's like, oh, but I have imposter syndrome or, you know, but I'm not a journalist or I'm not the expert. I say, it's okay. Now there's Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell speaks about topics that he's not the world's leading expert in. What he is, is a great researcher. He's a great storyteller. And he storyteller. will find the context <laughs> yeah. and yeah. a great storyteller. And then right. we'll share that context with you in such a way that you, that you value Gladwell as the curator of the content almost more than the creator. Right. I was going to say, he he stitches together these things that all exist and then just puts a great story layer on top of it, right? Yes. And even why I love Gladwell so much, he's possibly my favorite all-round speaker. I got to share a stage with him once, which was pretty cool, is because even when I disagree with him, in fact, a lot of his books, I don't agree with the premise of the books, like blink. I, I was like, I basically rage read the whole book. I was like, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. But, but I loved the reading of it. So yeah. even when I disagreed with him, I thought that I thought I was delicious disagreement. Although what I've heard is, you know, when you start a chapter or you start a book or you start a presentation, right? The story there has a different purpose, right? It is, it is to make an emotional connection to whatever the you know, the concept that you're trying to introduce. So like, think about the opening story, right? How, why is that so important? Well, it doesn't even have to be an, a story. So yeah. let's separate story from an opening because one of my favorite openings is Esther Perel. If you've ever seen Esther Perel speak, she does a question opening. Yeah. Have you ever wondered about this? Have you ever thought about doing that? Do you ever stop to think about this? What about, have you ever done about that? So to me, the job of any opening of anything, the opening line of your book, the opening line of a blog post, a headline, an email, a presentation is always the same. You want to achieve two things, clarity, what topic are we talking about, and curiosity. So you want somebody to know what you're talking about, but be interested in your angle. So you have to solve for those two things at the beginning of everything, clarity and curiosity. And uh, one way of doing an opening for that, it, there's a, a very, very popularized way that happens with a lot of EO speakers, would be the, the kind of late night share. It was a dark night on the yeah. 16th of October, 2005, you know, uh, I was sitting alone. Your voice and it's a just great got device. evil as you do that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it was a dark and lonely night. But it is a great share. And there's certain stories. If I want to tell a personal story, I want to paint a picture. You want to get those mirror neurons firing. 
But for me, it's not a typical opening uh, that I would do. So my probably my favorite opening line, uh, if I was to say anything, is I think we've been lied to and it's pissing me off. And then I'll explain what I think we've been lied to about because nobody likes being lied to. So I say, you know, I think we've been lied to about this idea of strategy. And I think by the end of the next 45 minutes, you will agree. And I want to share with you some thinking around that, why I think we've been lied to and why it's so fundamentally important that we reframe that lie in our head in order to be successful in business. And so now there's there's clarity. We're talking about strategy, okay, for business people, but there's curiosity in, wait a minute, that's counter-narrative. Strategy is brilliant. Why would you tell me that we've been lied to about this? In which part? And there's curiosity. So even if they disagree with me, they want to hang around to argue. Yeah, and and that's basically what you're saying about Gladwell, right? You're, you're, <laughs> you're reading his book and you don't agree with him, but he's got you engaged or maybe wanting to keep trying to disprove him, you know, as, as you read along. There was a fantastic study done. So humans as rational beings, of course, we know we're not, but actually this great study was done uh, and it was on the idea of rationality versus reason. And these guys realized that the only real time we try to apply rationality is for argument. As humans, basically what we're trying to do is we, we generally think in reason, which is very emotional and things like this. Right. But the only real time we dip into rationality is when we want to back up. It's a post hoc argumentation. It's like, I've just said something to you. I want to prove it. So now I'm going to find rational argument to back myself up. And so that's kind of what happens with, with Gladwell. I'm, I'm trying to reading to argue with them. I'm staying on the hook right. and I'm, I'm building my fight. Like I've had so many fictitious lunches with Malcolm Gladwell where we've argued things um, that actually when I eventually met him, it was quite disappointing because <laughs> we didn't. Who wins when you, when you have these arguments? I mean, probably Gladwell. Well, I, it depends. I don't. I think that probably what would happen, probably what happens with most argument with, with people that I find is uh, we realize that we're arguing from different premises. And it, when we can figure out what the premise and the point of departure of our argument is, then we generally find we agree. And sometimes I'll argue, for example, for ages, I argued with Gladwell about 10,000 hours because I felt that, you know, I've typed for more than 10,000 hours, but <laughs> I'm still a better. crappy typist. Yeah. yeah. But I realized that that Gladwell doesn't say do something for 10,000 hours. So you kind of sometimes forget the little bits of the story. Then you write your own sub-narrative and then you come back right? and, and you want to fight with them. So I would argue with him about that. We would counter-argue. We'd realize we're saying the same thing. If there was one person I would like to argue with, one speaker that I think is fundamentally wrong, and I don't even think it's a good speech, is Ken Robinson, Sir Ken Robinson. Unfortunately, he's dead. Interesting. I was reading a book about hype last night by a guy who put together what have all the sort of hype propagandist artists in history done nefariously so you can understand how to use it for good. And, and one of the cure principles was picking a common enemy, right? And you see this in, in what everyone's doing today. All right, Rich, one, one last question, and then, then we'll, I want to talk to you, dive into some specifics. So, I mean, we talked about how to engage an audience like before. Like, what's the best way to even said engaging, we don't agree with them. What is the best way to lose someone's attention right away? Well, I think talk about yourself. <laughs> I believe all audiences have a gas tank, a give a shit tank. And you have to work under the assumption that when you get on stage, it's empty. 
And you need to realize that when you're on stage, you're not telling your story. You're, you're selling them a new version of their story in which you play a part. So in the movie credits of your life right now, if you were to die, you know, 50 years from now, all I would be was guest on my podcast. My job is never to make your film my film. My job is to audition for a better part in yours. If you can't figure out how to do that for your audience, if you can't let them understand that you're trying to help them write a better movie for themselves early, you will lose them because they don't care about your story. So what happens often is a speaker will come on stage and they'll start telling something and either it's got documentary value, like it's so incredible that you're just, you're just, oh, I want to watch this thing. This is great. Right. But to your point before, that's got that's got to be the one in a thousand. Right. It's got to be not the guy who climbed Everest, but the guy who climbed Everest with one leg, which had never been done before. So I saw a guy last week speak an incredible, incredible story. And he has climbed Akikagua with no arms and no legs. Yeah. Standing right. ovation every single time. Every single time he gets on stage, he'll get a standing ovation because you're genuinely curious. Yeah. To know how does somebody climb, and it's a really cool story, right? It's actually quite a motivating story, and he's got some really nice little nuggets in it along the way. Uh, there's certain story arc things I'd love to work with him on, but but it's there. He falls under the category of I'm going to listen regardless because it's just so super cool. Yeah. But for most of us, the beginning, the audience will be listening, and all they're trying to figure out is why should I care to spend my attention on the next 30 minutes of this. That's what they're trying to ascertain at the beginning. And your job early is to make them understand that there's something in it for them. Yeah, my friend, uh, uh, Connor Neal, you know, who's great, brilliant speaking coach. You might know him through EO. He's like, there are a lot of great ways to start a speech. And I think he says a question, uh, a story. Uh, there's another one or, co or something that makes you think. The way not to start a speech is, and he taps on the mic and says, hey, you know, is this working? My name's Connor. I'm here from whatever, you know, he's like, don't, don't start your speech like that. Yeah. I love Connor. I mean, in fact, Connor's probably the one who socialized, I think the, that, uh, uh, 3am opening to many, many years. Cause it's such a nice, easy one to do. And it's a really, yeah. really great way to open a speech. And Connor's incredible. In fact, his Ted talk on how to open a speech, I think is probably the most, his, sorry, his, um, YouTube video is probably the most watched YouTube video on that topic in the world. It's got, I think it's got a couple million views at this point. I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. If you have not watched that, we'll, we'll add that to the resources, how to open a speech. Uh, every time I create a new speech or whatever, I go back and I watch that for a few minutes because he, he just, he's just so good at showing. I mean, there's one point when he talks about how you build suspense in a speech and in doing it, he's literally building suspense to and, and you, see, and you see yourself watching and being like, are you going to tell me, are you going to, I think like, Oh, brilliant. <laughs> Well, so you've hit on the main thing there. there there's got to be something absent. So people want to figure something out, right? People want to, and people want to feel like they're smart. It's why we love watching, you know, mystery dramas like Agatha right. Christie style things where you've got to try and figure out, you know, what happened at the end. And actually, if you can allow your audience to feel smart, to try and solve for something, you're going to do well. That's a great opening. You want to get somebody on the hook. And that's where that's why where the curiosity comes in. So if they can think, okay, I'm curious about this now. I wonder why he's saying uh, he doesn't agree with strategy in a world of autonomy. Like, where are we going with this? I wonder what I would think. And so they go off in their back channels having a, a conversation with themselves. They're trying to, they're trying to get the punchline before you get there. Right. And if you can give them that gift, you're winning. Because then they want to hang around for the reveal. 
someone actually pointed out to me recently that one of the reasons why QAnon was so successful was their strategy was to actually leave, and this might have been even Stanley McChrystal, like leave breadcrumbs that led to an like a logical conclusion, but that people would solve it for themselves, and therefore they thought it was true. And I actually hadn't realized that, but I thought it was a very interesting observation. Yeah, we're we're guessing machines. I reckon there's two kinds of people in the world: there are knowledge hunters and knowledge gatherers. And almost by default, most professional speakers speak to knowledge hunters. Uh, my favorite audiences are knowledge hunters. I want the, the audience member who, who comes up to me after and says, listen, I disagree with your point on this. Let me tell you my take on it. Amazing. I want to get into those meaty discussions. As opposed to knowledge gatherers who will just listen to something, take it in and say, okay, okay, cool, 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 cool. And they just accept everything. They want right. you to package their ideas for them. And I think when you find those knowledge hunters, if you can give them something, or you, if you can turn an audience into a knowledge hunter, it's a great gift you can give them. And again, that's why for me, the, when you're writing your opening of your speech, you look at those first few minutes and ask yourself, is there clarity and is there curiosity? And if you're missing one of those, I'm curious about what you're talking about. That's not a good opening. But I know what you're talking about and I'm curious about what your, your hypothesis is. That's a great opening. And you just got to solve for those two at the beginning. And there's so many ways to do that. That is super interesting. And this goes to our sales presentations and, and all these things. So I, I know in your business- Especially. Yeah. Well, you share a presentation action framework. Can you talk about what an action framework is? Yeah. So I, this will run, ring true relative to what we said. So after about maybe 18 years of running Missing Link, uh, we wanted to sit down and, and a, lot of this, a lot of it was we were intuiting presentation. Like I kind of knew what felt right as a speaker and what felt right with their content. And we wanted to break it into a framework that just made a lot of sense. And we came up with four lines. We call it our action framework. And the reason for that is that every presentation you do should try to drive somebody to action, right? A presentation is delivering a message to achieve a result. If you haven't driven them to action, it's just entertainment. Right. So you can watch something that's super interesting, like a Netflix documentary, but if you don't get up and do something different as a result of it, it's actually, a, it's just entertainment then. Right. So we want to start with that and we want to figure it out. And the four steps we've come up with are very, very simple. When I deliver a speech, I almost always, and you can check out any of my speeches and you'll see this, I will deliver in this way. When I prepare, I basically prepare backwards. So step number one, you've got to give your audience a reason to care. You've got to fill their gas tank. I want to give my audience a reason to care early on. Step number two, I want to give them a reason to believe. This is where I differ, by the way, from typical Silicon Valley pitches. They pop the least reason to believe stuff near the end of their presentation. But I think this goes against peak end theory. So I want to make you care. And then I want to make you believe that I'm a trusted resource about the topic that I've just made you care about. Yeah. That doesn't have to be that I'm the world's leading expert. I just have to share the research that I've done. You know, I spent the last three years researching this topic. And I want to share with you today my surprising findings around this. That's enough. Or that's where your story can build some credibility into the expertise. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. And again, if you're a professional speaker, your bio can do a lot of the heavy lifting for you that the MC will read beforehand. If you're in your speech, you don't want to talk about yourself too much. You come across as narcissistic and a bit of an asshole. Okay. Step number three. Once, once I've given you a reason to care and I've given you a reason to believe, so you care about this topic and you trust me, then everything changes. Now I'm going to start telling you. So step number three is tell them what they need to know. This is the raw information. This is the data. Typically, when we're working with speakers, we say to them, you know, you know, the standard rule of three works in here. Give them three big ideas. 
And actually, inside those ideas, the action framework will exist again. Give them a reason to care, a reason to believe, tell them what they need to know, tell them what they need to do for each of those big ideas. And then finally, we go into step number four, which is tell them what they need to do. Because if action followed knowledge, we'd all have six packs. And people don't need to be told the big, broad ideas, not enough for them to have the knowledge. You want to tell them what is the smallest single step you can do tomorrow or today or now as a result of this presentation that will set you in the right direction, that will start creating momentum. You're like the bungee jump guy who pushes you off the edge of the panel. That's all you want to do is just get them to fall off the edge. You don't have to care that they go all the way down. Yeah. And and it's interesting that you say this in the context of you know some of the stuff that's going on in the US right now and watching all these emphatic posts and otherwise. And often they sign off with not a call to action, but a call to sort of us versus them or if you don't agree with me, screw you. Like, and I'm thinking like, I'm just not sure that anything that came before it will, will get the desired result because at the end, you have the people who already agree with you and the people who don't, who you just told, you know, that whatever they think, you know, doesn't matter. And so I, I've, I've read some really interesting posts and thoughts and all this stuff. I, I just don't know how many of them will evoke action. Yes, because... I don't know if you remember, I think it was Kildini's book, Persuasion or Influence or whatever it was. Yeah. And like, it's a famous story. I think Gladwell also wrote about it. The, the lady that was being attacked in New York City and everybody was watching and the attacker ran away and came back and ran away and came back. And eventually, like, he attacked her three times and stabbed her to death and people were watching. And they said something like 30 people were watching in this story, but nobody called the police. And when they did the study, they basically realized that people have to be called to action explicitly. So I have to turn around and say, help, help, blue shirt, blue golf shirt in the window with the stripes, call the police. Red t-shirt, call the ambulance. And as soon as I point and say, you know, blue polo shirt, go and do this, you'll get up and you'll run and you'll do it. And so we need to call our audiences to specific action. And a great example of that for me, and it was done by our friends at Duarte, and I love it, is Inconvenient Truth. Because Inconvenient Truth, he paints this big picture. It's the only presentation ever won an Oscar. But he paints this big picture of the planet. And like, it's so devastatingly bad that you have to be sitting at home thinking, well, I can do nothing. And then at the end of the talk says, you must be thinking that you can do nothing, but that's not true. You know, you can do something. All you have to do is next time you go to the grocery store or the hardware store or whatever, all I want you to do is buy an energy saving light bulb. That's it. That's it. If everybody does that, that's enough. But of course, what happens is when you go, I mean, this is what happened to me. You go to the shops, you buy an energy saving bulb, and then something in your brain says, hey, I'm the kind of person that cares about yeah. this stuff. So then you start recycling and then you start doing other things and then you start buying like sustainable clothing from these weird farmers. And then the next thing you wake up one morning like me and you're a vegan and you think all I was trying to do was watch a documentary, like what happened to my life? And that is that is what happens. But it was the smallest first stepping stone action. But people don't think about that. So the other call to action is they'll say, go out there and you know, save the environment. Well, I don't know where to start, bro. Like, I can't help you with that. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. 
I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Yeah, those things are, the boil the ocean stuff is, is really hard. I, I can think in some of these messages, someone actually wrote a great one this morning around some of the stuff going on with the Supreme Court here. And they said, look, I've, I've thought, I've listened, I've wrestled with this. At the end of the day, I know it's not earth shattering, but here are the five things that I did. And then they listed, like I donated to X, Y, and Z. I went and volunteered here. To me, it was really helpful. I think otherwise you could say, look, if you disagree with this vehemently, here's an article you might want to read. Maybe it'll change your perspective. I, I don't, you know, at least some chance of, of doing something rather than a well-intentioned rant which it, also in the world of algorithmic bias, right, is going to get lots of agreement from the people that you already agree with you and, and probably not persuade anyone that doesn't, which is actually who you're appealing to. Yeah, and you're probably not appealing to the people who vehemently disagree with you. You're you're <laughs> actually appealing to the people Moderates, who have yeah. undecided. Yeah. Right. So and that that is it. So you when I see people get into these big arguments and debates online. It's it's problematic it's because yeah. nobody's trying to do anything. In fact, I once got into an argument with somebody online, and, and I thought, well, I could never win this. Actually, I love the argue, the idea of argument. We, we all believe that the person's going to be like, Rich, you know what? You were right. <laughs> like we, we believe this in our relationships. We believe this with our kids and online. And, and you know what? I used to reply to all these people around Friday Fords, and I'd write them a long, engaged reply, and they'd never write back. So I just stopped doing it like because i you know i it, it's just but particularly you watch i've been watching some of these threads on linkedin i'm like they're they're just not going to be like you know what i see it your way <laughs> yeah so i got into a and but this is something you spoke about earlier i got into a, a massive uh, somewhat political debate on linkedin uh a few weeks Le ago learn to never do that again right <laughs> yeah 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 it got pretty heated uh but Actually, it was it was so much so that I've now decided to write a book on the topic. So I'm taking the entire thing, I'm writing a book, and actually I actually paid one of the people, or I'm paying one of the people who's argued with me the most vehemently, the most disparagingly, there are consultants in this field. And what I've decided to do is to, instead of arguing for my case, the entire premise of the discussion is, what do we agree upon? Because the irony is that the core concept is built happens to be built around inclusion, the whole concept of that the world should be more inclusive. We're on the same side of the fence, like right. not even a little bit, not marginally. We're one hundred. I one hundred percent agree that the world needs to be inclusive. We may just be disagreeing on the methods. So what I want to try and find, and this is one of the most important things they teach in traditional rhetoric, is a very very powerful tool is to create a commonplace. Where yeah. do we live together? What do we agree upon? And that's a win for me. This is bigger circles. I just read that. Dr. King was like, like one of the few people who got this, that you you need to draw bigger circles and pull people in, that that hate has never 
created more love and tolerance. Never, <laughs> no matter anyone tried. But but everyone forgets that lesson. And I agree with you. In, in some of this thing of inclusion, you have people, you know, using rhetoric and name calling and stuff that basically tries to pit people into groups, which is antithetical to what you're trying to discuss. So it's we seem to not learn the lessons of history here in terms of like, again, how do we build a bigger tent around an argument, a philosophy or otherwise? As soon as you put up walls or tell someone that what they think is invalid, and then you think they're going to come under your tent, like that's a <laughs> that's crazy. That's so I've never heard that. Now, this to me is functional. What you just did there is that is beautiful storytelling. If you ask me to give you a great example of beautiful storytelling, people get it. Like I've never heard that descriptor before about building a bigger tent, right? But it's actually amazing because at some point we start agreeing. So I was having a debate. I mentioned earlier that I'm a vegan. I have to mention it or I lose my yeah. <laughs> ticket to the club. You know, we, we were like CrossFitters. We've got to bring it in everywhere. But I remember having a debate with somebody about a different issue. And I had to try and explain this to him. So I wanted to create a bigger fence around this to understand the, the idea of differing points of view. And I said, hey, let's, this guy is a famous South African comedian and, and ventriloquist, but he's very, very political. And that's his, his great, his gig, his, his bit. And I said, hold on a second. Uh, like, Conrad, I know I, I happened to see you recently, uh, you know, posting that you went for a meal or something, and I see you eat meat. And he said, yes. I said, cool. And I said, but, but I also do believe that uh, you do not buy into the idea of animal cruelty. And he said, of course not. I said, now you understand from my absolutist point of view, there is no debate to be had. If I wanted to take the, the assholy view, it would be that if you eat meat, no, I absolutely don't feel this. I don't believe right, right, right. that people- When the truth it. is probably that 95% of the practices are not are, are cruel and 5% are not cruel. Totally. You wouldn't agree with them. If, if abattoirs had glass yeah. windows, we would be a very different you know, space. <laughs> but anyway, my, my point was we're, we're actually standing in the same place, look at taking the same point of view on the argument of animal cruelty. We're just standing at different levels towards that. And he agreed. And I said, great. So now the person you're debating on this issue around race, can you agree? And then it got to this topic and like, ah, okay, I see what you're saying here. And they're just, he's happened to be standing two or three steps further back on the quantum. His, right. his edge of the tent is, is right. larger and wider. And, or in fact, his is smaller. He's closer to the core of it. And when we understood that, I said, like, you, you are not arguing and you think you're arguing against. You're arguing for the same outcome from different positions. And we need to see that. And it was a mutual friend. It was basically the two of them were having an argument about something and I wanted to frame that. So I built not just a bigger tent around their issue. I did that by building a bigger tent around a, an issue that he wasn't currently invested in, put him in the other person's shoes and then brought him back in. And that's what we, that's the only way we can solve by creating commonplace. Yeah. And, and, and right. Telling someone they are wrong and their belief is invalid it's just not going to produce a positive outcome. As you said, even if you, I think this is a really important thing as we all think of ourselves as communicators and storytellers and social media and otherwise, it's just not going to create a better outcome. It's like putting up a brick wall in your, in your tent rather than saying, where do we have some common ground? Or I can understand why you believe this. Here are some examples of situations where I think this rule might not work or might be harmful or, you know, this is the always and the never, right. And, and everything is not that simple, but I, 
I'm 100%. surprised at how much energy I see expended on things that I don't think will change that outcome, which I'm just, I often wonder like, wh- why do it? Well, I think it's because it's the, for me, a lot of the things that happen online, it's uh, armchair quarterbacking. It's yeah. the feeling that you did something. It's the feeling that you contributed. But, you know, I, I personally don't think arguing on the internet can count as an action. Yeah. Especially when you're arguing with the same people and you're saying the same arguments, you have to ask yourself, what new am I bringing to this? And, right. and how am I going to, who am I going to try to persuade and why? And the other thing, the other thing I think is important before you get into any meaningful argument with anyone, because I love argument. Argument is not fighting. Argument is the basis of yeah. all human education. Two smart people got together and they debated. But, but but two people having an argument with a thousand watching them is a different, right? I mean, that, oh, yeah, that that's, that's the dynamic that's really different. Completely, completely. Yeah. And it's often uninteresting. But I watched, for example, I watched Stephen Fry and Jordan Peterson have a debate about God recently. And I thought... They, they both come from such a large pool that there was actually some smart arguments. At the end of it, I realized that one had um, simple thoughts uh, explained with complexity and the other had um, complex ideas explained with simplicity. I'll leave you to decide which one was which, but it was actually quite an amazing thing to watch. But I enjoyed it nonetheless because they they did, even though it was two smart people in the public domain watched by thousands, they were able to present their cases uh, with eloquence, which is what we should seek to do. And we should always know when we get into an argument, what are the loss conditions or what are the victory conditions I'm willing to give my opponent? I love this thing. I heard you speak about this recently. I don't like it. When you talk about victory conditions, I think it's a really important concept. Yes. So a victory condition is always for me. And again, in, in, uh, especially in, in terms of business and things like this, a lot of people talk about the idea of like James Carson's idea that Simon Sinek has made popular around business being an infinite game. I don't see it that way. And in fact, I think it's problematic when we do. I actually think that most business is a series of finite games. And I think if you want people to if we want our staff to feel to some degree autonomous, I think that we have to create not a strategy for them, but a strategic destination. So if we get to here by then, this is, by the way, I'm I'm saying in business, but it's true across the board. If you want to get a group of humans to do something, you explain to them, this is why I think we need to be here by then. If you can explain that rationally to people, you now have a victory condition. You now say, great. That is what we as a group are playing for. What I want is everybody to bring their unique ideas of how they can get closer to X. Because I think in life, we often confuse moving forwards with moving towards. And I think we should always be moving towards. And the way to do that is to have a shared sense of victory. So I always play lots of board games. I've always got a game handy. And the one thing that's always clear about a game is what winning looks like. It's never messy. If if the victory condition of a game is messy, it's not a good game. The victory condition has to be clear. And then it doesn't matter even if it's arbitrary. If that is the condition of victory and there's an arbitrary tiebreaker rule that says, you know, the end, the person who did it with the fewest cards in their hand, it doesn't matter. That is that we've agreed on those conditions up front. So we're happy for that to be the case. And then we play towards that. And I think that we need to be more mindful in any engagement we do in a presentation we're writing. What is my victory condition? If I get off this stage and I have not achieved X, I have failed. Define X. And that is a question I ask to every single customer that tries to book me to speak at one of their conferences. Right. That's a good question to ask so that they are, in the end, happy with the result. 
Exactly. But also because they've given it to you, it's very, very easy. Okay, cool. So am I understanding that if I do X and I know what my talk does, if I can put a spotlight on this, get them to understand that and call them to action this way, you would feel that that would be a win for your audience, given the current challenges you're facing. Yes. Amazing. And that is something I can deliver upon. And sales are easy because that's what they want. We've now agreed that we have a shared condition of victory that we're working towards. And, uh, you know, I've helped co-create that with my customer. Everyone should think about what their victory condition is. I love, I I heard you say that recently, a few weeks ago in a speech, and I loved it. It's just so, you know, shared goals is trite, but I I just feel like it's such a clear expression of what, what, what the outcome that you're seeking. So, so I know we could do this uh, for a long time, but um, let's, uh, let's wrap it up with my favorite question here. So this can be, this is a multivariant question. We like to make it challenging. It can be singular or repeated, or it could be personal or professional. But what's a mistake that you've learned the most from? Starting lots of companies. You know, there's, we mentioned EO a couple of times, entrepreneurs organization. And I started to believe that I was an entrepreneur, that entrepreneur was what I was, not what I did. And actually, I became an entrepreneur when, when I was 22 years old and I looked at staging and I thought, I'm solving the wrong problem. Presentations are crap. I can do better and started a presentation company. That was the moment I became an entrepreneur. It was an action. It was an event. And as long as I continued on that realm, I didn't have to do anything to prove it. The problem is we start writing, you said the term earlier, serial entrepreneur, and I was that for my sins for a while. Because I, I thought as a serial entrepreneur, if I, if I go to an airplane, you know, customs form, job, entrepreneur, that means that you're defining yourself on the businesses you begin. So I'd started lots and lots and lots of different companies. And, but what I had is a distracted intention that I could pay. And it was only when I realized that, no, I don't want to be an entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneur by virtue of what I did. I want to be a craftsperson. I want instead of being bored of my business, I want to be bored in my business. Yeah. Only when I understood that did everything change. And now every single day, today included, sorry, every single work day, today included, from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. is craft hour. All I'm doing is reading my competitors' books, watching them speak, and learning uh, how they think about handling the, the craft of presentation. And the unfair advantage is I'm reading their book and they're almost certainly not reading mine. So I know their tricks when we're pitching against them. And that was the mistake I made is that I define myself as an entrepreneur instead of defining myself as a craft person. And as soon as I did that, that changed everything. Every metric and every victory condition was was changed because I no longer base my measurement on how much revenue I've created. Right. And I think there's a difference between the need to start things, which some people are entrepreneurs are good at and can't finish versus honing your craft, which is a much more broad-based application for people, right? Yeah, I think so. And again, this is, you asked for me personally, this was what was right for me. I certainly don't take away from anybody who is more entrepreneurial, but for me, that was a mistake I made. Absolutely. All right, Rich, where can people learn more about you and your work and your company? If you go to getrich.af, which is my favorite (laughs) domain ever, (laughs) it was great, except when I was in the Middle East, they're like, why Afghanistan? (laughs) Like, no, 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 it's an inside joke. GetRich.af will take you to my personal page. There's lots of links to everything, my books, my YouTube channel. And uh, probably the place I'm most active on is actually LinkedIn. And then INeedMissingLink.com will get you to details about my business, uh, where you can learn about our professional speaking program, where we help people write talks that actually do resonate, uh, and our, our various other programs that we have. 
All right, Rick, thanks for uh, joining us today. I love hearing your thoughts on, on this topic, more, more important than ever in terms of, I think, how we communicate and how we get our, our message across. So I look, look forward to doing it again. Uh, Bob, thanks so much for having me, man. It's been really, really amazing. All right, you can learn more about Rich and his work on the episode page at robertglazer.com. I have a quick favor to ask. If you enjoyed today's episode or the Elevate podcast in general, I need your help letting other people uh, know about it uh, as that's how new users discover the show. So if you're listening in Apple Podcasts, and I know you are right now, uh, just select the uh, library icon, click on Elevate, scroll down to the bottom, and you can leave a review or a rating in five seconds. Uh, If you're listening in your browser or a different app, uh, you can find links uh, to review on other services such as Google Play and Stitcher by following the subscribe page on the podcast link at robertglazer.com. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.